You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Good morning, everyone. If we have not met, like Matt said, my name is Anthony and I am the pastor resident here at Liberty. And this morning, I'm going to be continuing us in our prayer series. And the goal of this series is to help us grow as a people of prayer and to give us some tools to do that. And so last week, Matt walked us through how prayer requires dependence. And this week, we're going to be discussing how prayer gives perspective. Prayer gives perspective. Now, something that I am called frequently that I don't fully agree with is that I am a coffee snob. It is a title I bear begrudgingly, but if I'm honest, it's probably accurate. I really love good coffee. And when I drink bad coffee, I probably won't say anything, but the look on my face says it all. And the reason that I'm a coffee snob is because at some point in my life, I tasted coffee that was so good, so unique, so vastly different than anything else I've ever experienced meaning that it wasn't just mud water, that there was just no going back for me. But please know that while I may be a coffee snob, everyone in this room has something that you are snobbish about. That thing, whether it be a food or a drink or a clothing item or a brand that you swear by, there is something that you will only accept a certain quality of. Everyone has their inner snob. And the reason for your snobbery, just like mine, is that at some point you experienced something of such high quality that you found to be so incredible that you haven't looked back. And from that point on, it was this thing and only this thing. And for better or for worse, and for me, let's be honest, probably worse, your life in some small way was changed. Your perspective was changed. And so this morning, we're going to talk about how prayer, in a much more significant way than coffee or food or anything else, changes our perspective. And to do that, we're going to take a look at Psalm 73. And as we read this psalm together, we're going to see this very sudden and very abrupt change in the perspective of the author. And it's this moment of change that we're going to want to focus on. This paradigm-shifting moment that the author has that causes him to go the complete opposite direction from the way he was heading. This moment that completely shatters his way of thinking, that shakes him out of the lies he was believing, the moment his perspective changed. With the hope that, as the people of God, we can be reminded of how important it is to have our, our perspective continually changed and tuned to the, pr- to the truth and presence of God, and how prayer is helpful for us to do that. And so let's turn our attention to Psalm 73, and we're going to tackle this psalm in two major chunks, each one being centered around two major things, looking and longing, where the writer was looking and what he was longing for. Because this psalm starts off with the author looking and longing for the way of the wicked, but then something happens, this profound moment of change. 
And then he begins to look and long for the Lord. And that is what we are after. And so to really immerse ourselves into this writing and to give space for the emotions and complexities of this psalm to come through, we're going to first read verses 1 through 15, take some time to talk about it, and then turn our attention to 16 through 28. So hear now the word of God from Psalm 73, verse 1 through 15. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their heart overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. Lawfully they threaten oppression. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is their knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak this, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Let's pray. Father, like the disciples asked of Jesus, teach us to pray. Teach us what it means to be a people who depend wholly on you and whose dependence is marked by prayer. And show us from your word this morning how easy it is to have our perspective warped by the world around us, but how much greater you are than the world. And let us leave here this morning with our eyes and our hearts fixed on you so that we can say with the psalmist, that there is nothing on earth that we desire besides you. Amen. And so as we jump into Psalm 73, I want to first define for us what a psalm even is and what to expect when we read them. Because as we're going through a prayer series, you can expect that we will be in the psalms often. And so for anyone who is unfamiliar, a psalm is a song or a poem that was sung and recited by the Israelites as a part of their gathered worship of God. And much like other psalms and poems that you may be familiar with, they are pieces of art, and they are full of beautiful and stark imagery, and they are dripping with emotions and questions and doubts and worships and fear, much like songs do now. We as humans have never quite gotten past putting our most sincere, sacred thoughts and emotions to music, which is something that we kind of love to do. And so in reading this psalm and the other ones that we'll encounter in this series, let yourself be struck by the depth and the beauty of these words. And let's not be tempted to think that the authors of Scripture and the authors of these psalms were stoic, emotionless drones, but they were real people who, just like ourselves, deeply wrestled with their faith. 
and through the inspiration and the preservation of these words by the Holy Spirit, we get a peek into that wrestling to help instruct us, to help give words and images to these common experiences, and to remind us that we are not the first people to have questions and a crisis of faith. And as we begin reading Psalm 73, it is clear that the writer is having a crisis of faith. And so we jump into verse 1, and we see that he starts off with this massive statement of truth. Truly, God is good to Israel and to all those who are pure in heart. And as one commentator put it, this is a creedal statement, meaning that the author is confessing a truth that was often recited and known to be true about God much like how each week we gather and we confess the Apostles' Creed together. And so starting off, things seem to be going all right. He's confessing this huge, often recited truth of God. But then we get to verse 2, and we begin to see the cracks forming, and we begin to see this crisis crisis taking, taking root. He says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, and my steps had nearly slipped. And he seems to be feeling like we often do. I know God is good. And I know it's good to follow him. But as for me, right now, this does not feel true. And there's this hard disconnect in this moment between what the writer intellectually knows about God and how he's experiencing him. And as we keep reading, it's clear why. Because the writer is looking toward the way of the wicked. And by wicked, he is referencing those who do not follow God and who are opposed to the way that God has called his people to live. So he's looking to that, and he's longing for it. And as we take careful note of the language and images that the psalmist uses to describe this looking and longing, they really revolve around two major things, ease and prosperity. Ease and prosperity. So first ease, the author looks to the wicked and he says, look at them. They have no pain until death. They are not troubled as others are. All the worries and concerns that the author is carrying around with him do not seem to be present among them, among those who do not follow God. And so he is allured by one, their apparent ease, but also two, their prosperity. In verse four, it says, The bodies of the wicked are fat and sleek. And we may hear that and think, those two words don't fit together. (laughs) But this has a little different connotation than what we may be assuming when hearing that someone is fat and sleek. What the psalmist here is highlighting is that they are in general good health, that they eat well, they never have to worry about where their next meal is coming from or other basic needs. So the psalmist sums up his feeling in verse 12 when he exhausted and at the end of his robe says, Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Behold, these are the people who I'm not supposed to follow. These are the people who reject and mock the God of the universe. These are the people who parade and rejoice in their sin. These are the ones who wear pride as a necklace, who are clothed in violence, who threaten oppression. And yet these are the people who appear successful. They're the ones who enjoy ease. They're the ones who enjoy riches. 
They are the ones who seem to be immune to the problems of the world. Behold, these are the wicked. And this brings us to the, the climax of this section, the peak of the psalmist's lament. Uh, and I don't know if anyone has ever had a moment where you cry out to the Lord in a way that you pray your deepest and most sacred thoughts and fears, or if you ever found yourself like dumping to a friend or to a spouse, and you're just dumping and you're exhausted, you're at the end of your rope and your filter is off. That is where the author's at. And that's where we get to verses 13 through 15, where the author cries out, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He's saying, God, what's the point? I have worked so hard to please you. I've tried so hard to keep your commands. I've praised your name. I've honored your name. I have fought and tried so hard not to live like the wicked. And yet look at them. They prosper. They enjoy ease. They enjoy prosperity while I suffer. God, they don't follow you. They mock you. They mock your people. And yet I'm the one suffering. I'm the one with a job loss. Or I'm the one uh, with a health crisis. Or I'm the one in deep, deep despair. And they prosper. And I'm sure there are many in this room who have been at this place. Or maybe some of you are at that place right now. And if that's you, or it has been you, please know this. This psalm is not over. There is hope. There is a far better place to look that satisfies your deepest longings in a way that the world around you, in a way that the way of the wicked never can. And so hear now the word of God from the rest of Psalm 73, verse 16 to 28. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. And here, right here, is where we see that change of perspective. And what the author has now isn't answers. He can't look back and know why the wicked prosper. He isn't given the key to their success. He isn't welcomed into a life of ease and luxury. But instead, 
the writer lifts his eyes to look and long for the Lord, which changed how he sees everything. The way of the wicked that he once deeply longed for, their apparent ease and prosperity, their lavishness and their luxury, their jeering and mocking of God, the author can now perceive for what it is, temporary and on a collision course with the God of the universe. The writer says, and then I discern their end. They are set in slippery places. They will fall to ruin. They are destroyed in a moment. In short, things do not end well for them. And what he longs for now isn't that temporary ease, that fading prosperity, or the swift end of the wicked. But instead, it's the nearness of God. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And all the things just a few verses ago, all the ease, all the success, all the riches, when held up against the glory and majesty of knowing God, is seen for being nothing more than temporary and empty. And so something has deeply changed in this writer. And so we should be asking, what was it? Because we should want to experience that same change. Because if I'm honest with myself, the beginning of this psalm describes me far more accurately than the second too often. And so trying to discover what that moment was and when this perspective shift happens, the most obvious place to pinpoint is verse 17. The author says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. And the key phrase that sticks out to us there is the sanctuary of God. This seems to be the place where the perspective-changing transformation occurred. This is the room where it happened. And so what does that mean? How do we then go to the sanctuary of God? How do we have this moment of change? And it would seem that the most specific answer to this question was that the author was referencing the temple. Uh, The temple was the place of worship for the nation of Israel that marked God's presence and was the place of gathered worship, of singing and prayer, and the reading of God's word. And while this is the image the writer is using, I think he's tapping onto something much bigger. Because the temple... The sanctuary of God marked the place that God dwelt amongst his people. And it was the place where they would go and be reminded of God's splendor and holiness and all that he had done to rescue and provide for and be amongst his people. It was the place where they were told and they rehearsed and they heard the true story of the world. And as the writer took his eyes off the wicked, and drifted his gaze to the sanctuary of God, he was changed. And so it's important that we, like the author, look to the sanctuary of God, that we may also be reminded of this true story of the world. Because, brothers and sisters, we live in a world that constantly lies to us, that daily dangles in front of us a promise of ease, a promise of happiness, a promise of purpose. And just like the serpent in Genesis 3, and just like the wicked here in verse 11, the world around us still whispers, 
How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Why follow Him when the wicked are the ones who are always at ease and always increasing in riches? Don't believe the lie. Don't believe it. Don't believe that there is a life worth living outside of God and that somehow He is holding you back. Let the words of this psalm and the truth of God remind you that the promises of ease and prosperity and happiness outside of God are empty and temporary, and they will only lead to pain and loss. You will not find what you are looking for. You will hit dead end after dead end trying to find joy and happiness in something that cannot provide it. But instead, like the psalmist says, know this, that it is good to be near to God, for he is a refuge, because riches will run out. Ease and comfort are fleeting. We've all felt and experienced this. Our hearts and our flesh will fail, but God will not. He is our strength and he is our portion forever. And when we fail... God is continually with us. He holds us by the hand. He guides us with his counsel. And he strengthens us until he receives us in glory. The life worth living is one that knows God, the good and righteous and holy God of the universe who sent his son Jesus into the world so that all who believe in Jesus can know God. And even more than that, be a part of the family of God. And while the end of the wicked is destruction, those who follow God enjoy him forever. And so I now hope we're all asking the same question. Well, how do I look and long for the nearness of God? How do I enter into the sanctuary? How do I have this moment the psalmist has? How do I remind myself of the true story of the world? And first off, If you are here and you are not a Christian, we're so glad that you're here. And please know that the way to know God is to know Jesus. And we would love to have a conversation with you about that and walk you through what that means. But for those of you who are here who are Christians, who would call yourself followers of God, we will spend the rest of our life seeking to know God more and experience his presence in our lives. And for some practical ways to do that, I would encourage you to look at the rhythms of grace that we often talk about here at Liberty, as they are all crucial ways that we routinely rehearse the gospel in our life, that we are reminded of the truth of God and his story of the world, and we are formed as his followers. But for this morning, being that we are in a prayer series, I want to zoom in on prayer. Because as we talk about a godly perspective on life and living according to this true story of the world, prayer is absolutely vital to that. Because prayer is a means by which we go before God, knowing that our perspective is skewed, knowing that we are often tempted to look and long for the way of the wicked, knowing that our strength will fail, and asking God to work in a way that is far greater than ourselves. And in prayer, we are acknowledging the great power of God, his deep love for us and the world. 
and in doing this daily and repeatedly and by praying for ourselves and others and the world around us day by day, week by week, prayer by prayer, we are attuning our desires to his. And by his grace, we can in some small way begin to see how he is at work all around us. Dallas Willard put this so well by saying, as we pray, God will meet us in love and love will keep our minds directed toward him as a magnet pulls on the needle of a compass. And so if you find yourself looking toward the world around you and longing for the ease and the prosperity of the wicked, if you ever feel as though you are following God in vain, let me suggest that your perspective has become warped. And let me implore you to take that before the Lord and maybe even pray the very words of this psalm in Psalm 73 and ask that he correct your perspective to see the surpassing worth of knowing him. And so the goal of this prayer series is not just that we all pray more, even though we hope that happens and that's a great outcome. But we also want to give you tools on how to pray. And so last week, Matt challenged us to pray with pictures, like we often see in the psalm. And so I hope that many of you tried that out this past week and found it helpful. And so this week, I want to add another tool to your prayer tool belt. Solitude and silence. Solitude and silence. Um, My first car was a 1998 Dodge Neon. And while it had four wheels and moved, as a 16-year-old, I loved it. But it did have its fair share of issues. And often this car would make some really strange and troubling noises, especially when it was kind of nearing the end of its life. And so on days when I had so much to do and not enough time to kind of pop the hood and pretend to know what I was looking at, it was just easier for me to crank the radio, forget about the noise, keep on driving. (laughs) I know many of you have been there too. It's okay. We can all admit it. And the sad thing is we do this in our spiritual life as well. We crank the noise, we crank the music, we crank the distraction, And we try to forget what is actually wrong, hoping that it goes away and we can hurry right on by. And if we're honest, this hurry and avoidance marks many areas of our life. We always have to have a podcast in our ear. We have a pile of books on our nightstand. We have a background show to do chores. Or we have a background show on so we can scroll our phones and figure out what show we actually do want to watch. But know that as we crowd our mind with noise, we are not immune to the noise. It has an effect on us, and it slowly changes and warps our perspective of the world. And before we know it, we find ourselves in the same place as the psalmist, looking and longing for all these things outside of God. And so we need routine moments of silence and solitude because they force us to turn down the noise, to sit alone before God and be still, and to come face to face with the reality of ourself, the reality of our world, and for God to reshape our perspective. Donald Whitney, in his incredibly helpful book on spiritual disciplines, writes, there is no better way to step back and get a more balanced, less worldly perspective 
our matters than through the disciplines of silence and solitude. And so let me invite you to make silence and solitude a part of your normal routine, especially your prayer routine. And I want to lay out some steps of what that may look like, because just saying have moments of silence and solitude can kind of feel nebulous and strange, but I think you'll find it's not. It's a practice we see Jesus doing in the Gospels and ones that Christians have been doing for centuries. And so here are five helpful guidelines on how to begin incorporating silence and solitude in your prayer life. And know that these are just guidelines. They're not hard and fast rules. And these guidelines are a combination of Tyler Stanton and Ruth Haley Barton, both of whom have written incredibly helpful works on prayer, solitude, and silence. So guideline one is to pick a reoccurring part of the day or week. The idea here is that it's something you can use as a normal rhythm. Step two, and parents of young kids, feel free to throw something at me, is try to pick a quiet location. I know this may be harder for some of you than others, and if you are a natural mover and focus uh, better while being active, this can be done through a walk or through a hike. But the idea here is just a quiet spot that removes as much distractions as possible. Uh, Guideline three is to begin your time of solitude and silence with a short invitational prayer. And this prayer is just meant to begin your time by asking God to meet you in that space. It can just be a few short words from Scripture. Some examples are, Search me, O God, and know my heart, from Psalm 139. Or the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A short invitational prayer. And number four, guideline four, real simple, sit in silence before God. And I know it may be awkward and feel strange and unproductive, but that's okay. And in many ways, that's what you want. It's okay to sit there, to let your mind be quiet, let yourself settle down and sit before God in silence. And since most of us have minds that tend to wander and we're not used to this kind of silence, I recommend meditating on the question, what have I been wanting from God and what has God been wanting from me? Again, for no one taking notes, what have I been wanting from God and what has God been wanting from me? And do not feel the need during this time to arrive at a hard and fast answer. Like the goal is not to come out of this with a bullet point list. Just let that question marinate. Bring it before the Lord. And so guideline five is to do this for at least two minutes. Feel free to go longer, but if you're doing this as a part of a normal rhythm, at least two minutes. And then from there, begin to pray as normal. And I think you'll be encouraged as you put that into practice this week. I hope that you will find that to be helpful. And so to kick things off right, I want to end our time with the moment of silence. We can't do solitude but we can do silence. So I'm going to start us off with a short invitational prayer. We'll spend two minutes together in silence, and then I will close us in prayer. And remember, if it's helpful, think on the question, what am I wanting of God? What is God wanting of me? All right, here we go. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. 
Father, grow us into a people of deep dependence in you, as evidenced by our prayer. Knowing that our perspective so easily becomes skewed, knowing that the world around us seeks to make us fall and whispers lies in our ear. But let us desire you above all else as we rest and hope in the promise of the gospel. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.